Chapter Seventeen of the Spirit of the Border by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter Seventeen. Joe awoke as from a fearsome nightmare. Returning consciousness brought a vague idea that he had been dreaming of clashing weapons, of yelling savages, of a conflict in which he had been clutched by sinewy fingers. An acute pain pulsed through his temples. A bloody mist glazed his eyes. A sore pressure cramped his arms and legs. Surely he dreamed this distress as well as the fight. The red film cleared from his eyes. His wandering gaze showed the stern reality. The bright sun, making the dewdrops glisten on the leaves, lighted up a tragedy. Near him lay an Indian whose vacant, sightless eyes were fixed in death. Beyond lay four more savages, the peculiar, inert position of whose limbs, the formlessness, as it were, as if they had been thrown from a great height and never moved again, attested that here, too, life had been extinguished. Joe took in only one detail, the cloven skull of the nearest, when he turned away sickened. He remembered it all now. The advance, the rush, the fight, all returned. He saw again Wetzel's shadowy form darting like a demon into the whirl of conflict. He heard again that hoarse, booming roar with which the Avenger accompanied his blows. Joe's gaze swept the glade, but found no trace of the hunter. He saw Silvertip and another Indian bathing a wound on Gertie's head. The renegade groaned and writhed in pain. Near him lay Kate, with white face and closed eyes. She was unconscious, or dead. Jim sat crouched under a tree to which he was tied. "'Joe, are you badly hurt?' asked the latter in deep solicitude. "'No, I guess not. I don't know,' answered Joe. "'Is poor Kate dead?' "'No, she has fainted.' "'Where's Nell?' gone replied jim lowering his voice and glancing at the indians they were too busy trying to bandage gertie's head to pay any attention to their prisoners that whirlwind was wetzel wasn't it yes how'd you know i was awake last night i had an oppressive feeling perhaps a presentiment anyway i couldn't sleep i heard that wind blow through the forest and thought my blood would freeze the moan is the same as the night wind the same soft sigh, only louder, and somehow pregnant with superhuman power. To speak of it in broad daylight, one seems superstitious, but to hear it in the darkness of this lonely forest, it is fearful. I hope I am not a coward. I certainly know I was deathly frightened. No wonder I was scared. Look at these dead Indians, all killed in a moment. I heard the moan. I saw Silvertip disappear and the other two savages rise. Then something huge dropped from the rock. A bright object seemed to circle round the savages. They uttered one short yell and sank to rise no more. Somehow at once I suspected that this shadowy form, with its lightning-like movements, its glittering hatchet, was Wetzel. When he plunged into the midst of the other savages, I distinctly recognized him and saw that he had a bundle, possibly his coat wrapped round his left arm, and his right hand held the glittering tomahawk. I saw him strike that big Indian there, the one lying with split skull. 
His wonderful daring and quickness seemed to make the savages turn at random. He broke through the circle, swung Nell under his arm, slashed at my bonds as he passed by, and then was gone as he had come. Not till after you were struck, and Silvertip came up to me, was I aware my bonds were cut. Wetzel's hatchet had severed them. It even cut my side, which was bleeding. I was free to help, to fight, and I did not know it. Fool that I am! i made an awful mess of my part of the rescue groaned joe i wonder if the savages know it was wetzel do they well i rather think so did you not hear them scream that french name as far as i am able to judge only two indians were killed instantly the others died during the night i had to sit here tired and helpless listening as they groaned and called the name of their slayer even in their death throes death wind they have named him well. I guess he nearly killed Gertie. Evidently, but surely the evil one protects the renegade. Jim Gertie's doomed, whispered Joe earnestly. He's as good as dead already. I've lived with Wessel and know him. He told me Gertie had murdered a settler, a feeble old man who lived near Fort Henry with his son. The hunter has sworn to kill the renegade. But mind you, he did not tell me that. I saw it in his eyes. It wouldn't surprise me to see him jump out of these bushes at any moment. I'm looking for it. If he knows there are only three left, he'll be after them like a hound on a trail. Gertie must hurry. Where is he taking you? To the Delaware town. I don't suppose the chiefs will let any harm befall you. But Kate and I would be better off dead. If we can only delay the march... Wetzel will surely return. Hush! Gertie's up. The renegade staggered to an upright position and leaned on the Shawnee's arm. Evidently he had not been seriously injured, only stunned. Covered with blood from a swollen, gashed lump on his temple, he certainly presented a savage appearance. Where's the yellow-haired lass? he demanded, pushing away Silvertip's friendly arm. He glared around the glade. The Shawnee addressed him briefly whereupon he raged to and fro under the tree, cursing with foam-flecked lips and actually howling with baffled rage. His fury was so great that he became suddenly weak and was compelled to sit down. "'She's safe, you villainous renegade!' cried Joe. "'Hush, Joe, do not anger him. It can do no good,' interposed Jim. "'Why not? We couldn't be worse off,' answered Joe. "'I'll get her! I'll get her again!' panted Gertie. "'I'll keep her, and she'll love me!' The spectacle of this perverted wretch speaking as if he had been cheated out of love was so remarkable, so pitiful, so monstrous, that for a moment Joe was dumbfounded. "'Bah, you white-livered murderer!' Joe hissed. He well knew it was not wise to give way to his passion, but he could not help it. This beast in human guise, whining for love, maddened him. Any white woman on earth would die a thousand deaths and burn for a million years afterwards rather than love you. I'll see you killed at the stake, begging for mercy, and, and be feed for buzzards, croaked the renegade. Then kill me now, or you may slip up on one of your cherished buzzard feasts, cried Joe, with glinting eye and taunting voice. Then go sneaking back to your hole like a hyena and stay there. Wetzel is on your trail. He missed you last night, but it was because of the girl. He's after you, Gertie. He'll get you one of these days, and when he does, my God! 
nothing could be more revolting than that swarthy evil face turned pale with fear gertie's visage was a ghastly livid white so earnest so intense was joe's voice that it seemed to all as if wetzel was about to dart into the glade with his avenging tomahawk uplifted to wreak an awful vengeance on the abductor the renegade's white craven heart contained no such thing as courage if he ever fought it was like a wolf backed by numbers the resemblance ceased here for even a cornered wolf will show his teeth and gertie driven to bay would have cringed and cowered even now at the mention of wetzel's enmity he trembled i'll shet your wind he cried catching up his tomahawk and making for joe silvertip intervened and prevented the assault he led gertie back to his seat and spoke low evidently trying to soothe the renegade's feelings silvertip give me a tomahawk and let me fight him implored joe pale-face brave black ancient chief pale-face shawnee's prisoner no speak more answered silvertip with respect in his voice oh where's nelly a grief-stricken whisper caught jim's ear he turned to see kate's wide questioning eyes fixed upon him nell was rescued thank god murmured the girl come along shouted gertie in his harsh voice as grasping kate's arm he pulled the girl violently to her feet then picking up his rifle he led her into the forest silvertip followed with joe while the remaining indian guarded jim the great council lodge of the delawares rang with savage and fiery eloquence wingenund paced slowly before the orators wise as he was he wanted advice before deciding what was to be done with the missionary the brothers had been taken to the chief who immediately called a council the indians sat in a half circle around the lodge the prisoners with hands bound guarded by two brawny braves stood in one corner gazing with curiosity and apprehension at this formidable array jim knew some of the braves but the majority of those who spoke bitterly against the pale-faces had never frequented the village of peace nearly all were of the wolf tribe of delawares jim whispered to joe interpreting that part of the speeches bearing upon the disposal to be made of them two white men dressed in indian garb held prominent positions before wingenund the boys saw a resemblance between one of these men and jim gertie and accordingly concluded he was the famous renegade or so-called white indian simon gertie the other man was probably elliot the tory with whom gertie had deserted from fort pitt jim gertie was not present upon nearing the encampment he had taken his captive and disappeared in a ravine shingis seldom in favor of drastic measures with prisoners eloquently urged initiating the brothers into the tribe several other chiefs were favorably inclined though not so positive as shingis kotoxen was for the death penalty the implacable pipe for nothing less than burning at the stake not one was for returning the missionary to his christian indians gertie and elliot though requested to speak maintained an ominous silence wingenund strode with thoughtful mien before his council he had heard all his wise chiefs and his fiery warriors supreme was his power freedom or death for the captives awaited the wave of his hand his impassive face 
gave not the slightest inkling of what to expect. Therefore the prisoners were forced to stand there with throbbing hearts, while the chieftain waited the customary dignified interval before addressing the council. Wigenund has heard the Delaware wise men and warriors. The white Indian opens not his lips. His silence broods evil for the pale faces. Pipe wants the blood of the white men. The Shawnee chief demands the stake. Wingenon says, Free the white father who harms no Indian. Wingenon hears no evil in the music of his voice. The white father's brother should die. Kill the companion of Deathwind. A plaintive murmur, remarkable when coming from an assembly of stern-browed chiefs, ran round the circle at the mention of the dread appellation. The white father is free, continued Wingenund. Let one of my runners conduct him to the village of peace. A brave entered and touched Jim on the shoulder. Jim shook his head and pointed to Joe. The runner touched Joe. No, no, I'm not the missionary, cried Joe, staring aghast at his brother. Jim, have you lost your senses? Jim sadly shook his head, and turning to Wingenund, made known in a broken Indian dialect that his brother was the missionary, and would sacrifice himself, taking this opportunity to practice the Christianity he had taught. The white father is brave, but he is known, broke in Wingenund's deep voice, while he pointed to the door of the lodge. Let him go back to his Christian Indians. The Indian runner cut Joe's bonds, and once more attempted to lead him from the lodge. Rage and misery shone in the lad's face. He pushed the runner aside. He exhausted himself trying to explain to think of Indian words enough to show he was not the missionary. He even implored Gertie to speak for him. When the renegade sat there, stolidly silent, Joe's rage burst out. Curse you all for a lot of ignorant redskins! I am not a missionary. I am Deathwind's friend. I killed the Delaware. I was the companion of Levant de la Mort. Joe's passionate vehemence and the truth that spoke from his flashing eyes compelled the respect, if not the absolute belief, of the Indians. The savages slowly shook their heads. They beheld the spectacle of two brothers, one a friend, the other an enemy of all Indians, each willing to go to the stake to suffer an awful agony for love of the other. Chivalrous deeds always stir an Indian's heart. It was like a red man to die for his brother. The indifference, the contempt for death, won their admiration. Let the white fathers stand forth, sternly called Wingenund. A hundred somber eyes turned on the prisoners. Except that one wore a buckskin coat, the other a linsey one, there was no difference. The strong figures were the same, the white faces alike, the stern resolve in the gray eyes identical. They were twin brothers. Wingenund once more paced before his silent chiefs. To deal rightly with the situation perplexed him. To kill both palefaces did not suit him. Suddenly he thought of a way to decide. Let Wingenund's daughter come, he ordered. A slight girlish figure entered. It was whispering winds. Her beautiful face glowed while she listened to her father. 
Wingenland's daughter has her mother's eyes, that were beautiful as a doe's, keen as a hawk's, far-seeing as an eagle's. Let the Delaware maiden show her blood. Let her point out the white butter. Shyly, but unhesitatingly, Whispering Winds laid her hand on Jim's arm. Missionary, be gone, came the chieftain's command. Thank Wingenland's daughter for your life, not the god of your Christians. He waved his hand to the runner. The brave grasped Jim's arm. Goodbye, Joe, brokenly said Jim. Old fellow, goodbye, came the answer. They took one last long look into each other's eyes. Jim's glance betrayed his fear. He would never see his brother again. The light in Joe's eyes was the old steely flash, the indomitable spirit. While there was life, there was hope. Let the Shawnee chief paint his prisoner black, commanded Wingenund. When the missionary left the lodge with the runner, Whispering Winds had smiled for she had saved him whom she loved to hear speak. But the dread command that followed paled her cheek. Black paint meant hideous death. She saw this man so like the white father. Her piteous gaze tried to turn from that white face, but the cold, steely eyes fascinated her. She had saved one, only to be the other's doom. She had always been drawn toward white men, Many prisoners had she rescued. She had even befriended her nation's bitter foe, Deathwind. She had listened to the young missionary with rapture. She had been his savior. And now, when she looked into the eyes of this young giant, whose fate had rested on her all unwitting words, she resolved to save him. She had been a shy, shrinking creature, fearing to lift her eyes to a pale-face's but now they were raised clear and steadfast. As she stepped toward the captive and took his hand, her whole person radiated with conscious pride in her power. It was the knowledge that she could save. When she kissed his hand and knelt before him, she expressed a tender humility. She had claimed the unquestionable right of an Indian maiden, she had asked what no Indian dared refuse a chief's daughter. She took the pale-face for her husband. Her action was followed by an impressive silence. She remained kneeling. Wingenund resumed his slow march to and fro. Silvertip retired to his corner with gloomy face. The others bowed their heads, as if the maiden's decree was irrevocable. Once more the chieftain's sonorous command rang out. An old Indian, wrinkled and worn, weird of aspect, fanciful of attire, entered the lodge and waved his wampum wand. He mumbled strange words and departed, chanting a long song. Whispering winds arose, a soft, radiant smile playing over her face, and still holding Joe's hand, she led him out of the lodge through long rows of silent Indians, down a lane bordered by tepees, he following like one in a dream. He expected to awaken at any minute to see the stars shining through the leaves, yet he felt the warm, soft pressure of a little hand. Surely 
this slender graceful figure was real she bade him enter a lodge of imposing proportions still silent in amazement and gratitude he obeyed the maiden turned to joe though traces of pride still lingered all her fire had vanished her bosom rose with each quick panting breath her lips quivered she trembled like a trapped doe but at last the fluttering lashes rose joe saw two velvety eyes dark with timid fear yet veiling in their lustrous depths an unuttered hope and love whispering winds save pale face she said in a voice low and tremulous fear father fear tell wiganon she christian indian summer that enchanted time unfolded its golden dreamy haze over the delaware village the forest blazed with autumn fire the meadows boomed in rich luxuriance all day low down in the valleys hung a purple smoke which changed as the cool evening shades crept out of the woodland into a cloud of white mist all day the asters along the brooks lifted golden-brown faces to the sun as if to catch the warning warmth of his smile all day the plains and forests lay in melancholy repose the sad swish of the west wind over the tall grass told that he was slowly dying away before his enemy the north wind the sound of dropping nuts was heard under the motionless trees for joe the days were days of enchantment his wild heart had found its mate a willing captive he was now all his fancy for other women all his memories faded into love for his indian bride whispering winds charmed the eye mind and heart every day her beauty seemed renewed she was as apt to learn as she was quick to turn her black-crowned head but her supreme beauty was her loving innocent soul untainted as the clearest spring it mirrored the purity and simplicity of her life indian she might be one of a race whose morals and manners were alien to the man she loved yet she would have added honor to the proudest name when whispering winds raised her dark eyes they showed radiant as a lone star when she spoke low her voice made music beloved she whispered one day to him teach the indian maiden more love for you and truth and god whispering winds yearns to go to the christians but she fears her stern father wingenand would burn the village of peace the indian tribes tremble before the thunder of his wrath be patient my chief time changes the leaves so it will the anger of the warriors whispering winds will set you free and be free herself to go far with you toward the rising sun with well your people she will love and be constant as the northern star her love will be an eternal spring where blossoms bloom ever anew and fresh and sweet she will love your people and raise christian children and sit ever in the door of your home 
praying for the west wind to blow or if my chief wills we shall live the indian life free as two eagles on the lonely crack although joe gave himself up completely to his love for his bride he did not forget that kate was in the power of the renegade and that he must rescue her knowing gertie had the unfortunate girl somewhere near the delaware encampment he resolved to find the place plans of all kinds he resolved in his mind the best one he believed lay through whispering winds first to find the whereabouts of gertie kill him if possible or at least free kate and then get away with her and his indian bride sanguine as he invariably was he could not but realize the peril of this undertaking if whispering winds betrayed her people it meant death to her as well as to him he would far rather spend the remaining days of his life in the indian village than doom the maiden whose love had saved him yet he thought he might succeed in getting away with her and planned to that end his natural spirit daring reckless had gained while he was associated with wetzel meanwhile he mingled freely with the indians and here as elsewhere his winning personality combined with his athletic prowess soon made him well liked he was even on friendly terms with pipe the swarthy war-chief liked joe because despite the animosity he had aroused in some former lovers of whispering winds he actually played jokes on them in fact joe's pranks raised many a storm but the young braves who had been suitors for wingenund's lovely daughter feared the muscular pale-face and the tribe's ridicule more so he continued his trickery unmolested joe's idea was to lead the savages to believe he was thoroughly happy in his new life and so he was but it suited him better to be free he succeeded in misleading the savages at first he was closely watched then the vigilance relaxed and finally ceased this last circumstance was owing no doubt to a ferment of excitement that had suddenly possessed the delawares council after council was held in the big lodge the encampment was visited by runner after runner some important crisis was pending joe could not learn what it all meant and the fact that whispering winds suddenly lost her gladsome spirit and became sad caused him further anxiety when he asked her the reason for her unhappiness she was silent moreover he was surprised to learn when he questioned her upon the subject of their fleeing together that she was eager to go immediately while all this mystery puzzled joe it did not make any difference to him or in his plans it rather favored the latter he understood that the presence of simon gertie and elliot with several other renegades unknown to him was significant of unrest among the indians these presagers of evil were accustomed to go from village to village exciting the savages to acts of war peace meant the downfall and death of these men they were busy all day and far into the night often joe heard gertie's hoarse voice lifted in the council lodge pipe thundered incessantly for war but joe could not learn against whom elliot's suave oily oratory exhorted the indians to vengeance but joe could not guess upon whom 
he was however destined to learn the third day of the councils a horseman stopped before whispering wind's lodge and called out stepping to the door joe saw a white man whose dark keen handsome face seemed familiar yet joe knew he had never seen this stalwart man a word with you said the stranger his tone was curt authoritative as that of a man used to power as many as you like who are you i'm isaac zane are you wetzel's companion or the renegade deering i'm not a renegade any more than you are i was rescued by the indian girl who took me as her husband said joe coldly he was surprised and did not know what to make of zane's manner good i'm glad to meet you instantly replied zane his tone and expression changing he extended his hand to joe i wanted to be sure i never saw the renegade deering he's here now i'm on my way to the wyandot town i've been to fort henry where my brother told me of you and the missionaries when i arrived here i heard your story from simon gertie if you can you must get away from here if i dared i'd take you to the huron village but it's impossible go while you have a chance zane i thank you i've suspected something was wrong what is it couldn't be worse whispered zane glancing round to see if he were overheard gertie and elliot backed by this deering are growing jealous of the influence of christianity on the indians they are plotting against the village of peace tarhe the huron chief has been approached and asked to join in a concerted movement against religion seemingly it is not so much the missionaries as the converted indians that the renegades are fuming over they know if the christian savages are killed the strength of the missionaries hold will be forever broken pipe is wild for blood these renegades are slowly poisoning the minds of the few chiefs who are favorably disposed the outlook is bad bad well what can i do cut out for yourself get away if you can with a gun take the creek below follow the current down to the ohio and then make east for fort henry but i want to rescue the white girl jim gertie has concealed here somewhere impossible don't attempt it unless you want to throw your life away buzzard jim as we call gertie is a butcher he has probably murdered the girl i won't leave without trying and there's my wife the indian girl who saved me zane she's a christian she wants to go with me i can't leave her i'm warning you that's all if i were you i'd never leave without a try to find the white girl and i'd never forsake my indian bride i've been through the same thing you must be a good woodsman or Wetzel wouldn't have let you stay with him pick out a favorable time and make the attempt i suggest you make your indian girl show you where gertie is she knows but is afraid to tell you for she fears gertie get your dog and horse from the shawnee that's a fine horse he can carry you both to safety take him away from silvertip how go right up and demand your horse and dog most of these delawares are honest for all their bloodshedding and cruelty with them might is right the delawares won't try to get your horse for you but they'll stick to you when you assert your rights they don't like the shawnee anyhow if silvertip refuses to give you the horse grab him before he can draw a weapon and beat him good you're big enough to do it 
The Delawares will be tickled to see you pound him. He's thick with Gertie. That's why he lays around here. Take my word, it's the best way. Do it openly, and no one will interfere. By heaven, Zane, I'll give him a drubbin. I owe him one, and am itching to get hold of him. I must go now. I shall send a Wyandot runner to your brother at the village. They shall be warned. Good-bye. Good luck. May we meet again. Joe watched Zane ride swiftly down the lane and disappear in the shrubbery. Whispering winds came to the door of the lodge. She looked anxiously at him. He went within, drawing her along with him, and quickly informed her that he had learned the cause of the council, that he had resolved to get away, and she must find out Gertie's hiding-place. Whispering winds threw herself into his arms, declaring with an energy and passion unusual to her that she would risk anything for him. She informed Joe that she knew the direction from which Gertie always returned to the village. No doubt she could find his retreat. With the cunning that showed her Indian nature, she suggested a plan which Joe at once saw was excellent. After Joe got his horse, she would ride around the village, then off into the woods, where she could leave the horse and return to say he had run away from her. As was their custom during afternoons, they would walk leisurely along the brook, and trusting to the excitement created by the councils, get away unobserved, find the horse, if possible rescue the prisoner, and then travel east with all speed. Joe left the lodge at once to begin the working out of the plan. Luck favored him at the outset, for he met Silvertip before the council lodge. The Shawnee was leading Lance, and the dog followed at his heels. The spirit of Mose had been broken. Poor dog, Joe thought he had been beaten until he was afraid to wag his tail at his old master. Joe's resentment blazed into fury, but he kept cool outwardly. Right before a crowd of Indians waiting for the council to begin, Joe planted himself in front of the Shawnee, barring his way. "'Silvertip has the pale-faces horse and dog,' said Joe in a loud voice. The chief stared haughtily, while the other Indians sauntered nearer. They all knew how the Shawnee had got the animals, and now awaited the outcome of the white man's challenge. "'Pale-faced heap liar!' growled the Indian. His dark eyes glowed craftily while his hand dropped, apparently in careless habit, to the haft of his tomahawk. Joe swung his long arm. His big fist caught the Shawnee on the jaw, sending him to the ground. Uttering a frightful yell, Silvertip drew his weapon and attempted to rise, but the moment's delay in seizing the hatchet was fatal to his design. Joe was upon him with tiger-like suddenness. One kick set the tomahawk spinning. Another landed the Shawnee again on the ground. Blind with rage, Silvertip leaped up, and without a weapon rushed at his antagonist. But the Indian was not a boxer, and he failed to get his hands on Joe. Shifty and elusive, the lad dodged around the struggling savage. One, two, three hard blows staggered Silvertip, and a fourth, delivered with the force of Joe's powerful arm, caught the Indian when he was off balance, and felled him battered and bloody on the grass. The surrounding Indians looked down at the vanquished Shawnee, expressing their approval in characteristic grunts. With Lance prancing proudly, and Mose leaping lovingly beside him, Joe walked back to his lodge. Whispering winds sprang to meet him with joyful face. She had feared the outcome of trouble with the Shawnee, but no queen ever bestowed upon returning victorious lord a loftier look of pride, a sweeter glance of love, 
than the Indian maiden bent upon her lover. Whispering winds informed Joe that an important council was to be held that afternoon. It would be wise for them to make the attempt to get away immediately after the convening of the chiefs. Accordingly, she got upon Lance and rode him up and down the village lane, much to the pleasure of the watching Indians. She scattered the idle crowds on the grass plots, she dashed through the side streets, and let everyone in the encampment see her clinging to the black stallion. Then she rode him out along the creek. Accustomed to her imperious will, the Indians thought nothing unusual. When she returned an hour later, with flying hair and disheveled costume, no one paid particular attention to her. That afternoon Joe and his bride were the favored of fortune. With Mose running before them, they got clear of the encampment and into the woods. Once in the forest, whispering winds rapidly led the way east. When they climbed to the top of a rocky ridge, she pointed down into a thicket before her, saying that somewhere in this dense hollow was Gertie's hut. Joe hesitated about taking Mose. He wanted the dog, but in case he had to run, it was necessary Whispering Winds should find his trail, and for this he left the dog with her. He started down the ridge, and had not gone a hundred paces, when over some gray boulders he saw the thatched roof of a hut. So wild and secluded was the spot that he would never have discovered the cabin from any other point than this, which he had been so fortunate as to find. His study and practice under Wetzel now stood him in good stead. He picked out the best path over the rough stones and through the brambles, always keeping under cover. He stepped as carefully as if the hunter was behind him. Soon he reached level ground. A dense laurel thicket hid the cabin, but he knew the direction in which it lay. Throwing himself flat on the ground, he wormed his way through the thicket carefully, yet swiftly because he knew there was no time to lose. Finally the rear of the cabin stood in front of him. It was made of logs, rudely hewn, and as rudely thrown together. In several places clay had fallen from chinks between the timbers, leaving small holes. Like a snake, Joe slipped close to the hut. Raising his head, he looked through one of the cracks. Instantly he shrank back into the grass, shivering with horror. He almost choked in his attempt to prevent an outcry. End of chapter 17 of The Spirit of the Border by Zane Gray Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio